Well, we have, uh, over the last few weeks, actually, this is the third Sunday, Ryan and I, and we began a series on the first letter that John writes, the epistle of 1 John. And he's writing to challenge believers who are being introduced to truths that aren't true and to some heretical teaching that Jesus certainly didn't come in the flesh, that God would never come in the flesh because the material world as we know it, according to the Gnostics, was evil. And therefore, God would have never come in in the incarnation. But John wants to refute that, and right off the bat, right out of the gates, he says to them, look, this is the facts. We've touched them. We've seen him. We've heard him. We saw him crucified. We saw the tomb. It was empty. We met him in resurrection. These are the facts. We testify of these truths, this objective reality, so that what has taken place in our life, we can share it with you so that objective reality, like it happened to us, will now become a subjective reality in your heart, in your soul, and in your mind. So we've been talking about three tests that John is going to raise as he speaks to these individuals. We talked about it in terms of the conscience or the moral test, the relational test, and the doctrinal test. Those three things will come up over and over again in this letter. But there's another test that I think we mentioned, and I want to make sure you're even thinking along those lines. It's the internal test. And it's what John, right off the bat, asks them if we've tasted him, and we've seen him, and we've touched him, and we spoke with him, and he changed our life. We want you to have fellowship with us And we want you to know a changed life as well. And what that means for us is that it's more than an external moral reformation. It's more than just doing the right thing. It's being a part of a spiritual transformation that happens from the inside out, not simply from the outside in. That's the first test. Have you been changed on the inside Have you sensed the presence of God? Have you grown in your moments with him? Have the word of God spoken to you in prayer or meditation or you've read the scriptures? Something's different. There's been a change. I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about direction. And so John challenges them with the fact that as we too have had that objective reality and that subjective experience, we call it the Holy Spirit, who illuminates all that Jesus spoke. John 14, 16, Jesus said, when I go, the Spirit will come, referred to as the helper, the advocate, the comforter, and he's gonna bring light to everything that I've said so that you can walk in light. Because as we think about our lives, we need to think about the fact that we live in a world, Paul tells us, that is very much filled with darkness. 
It frightens us as we think about the world in which we live these days and we see the news or we watch what's going on that there is this realm of darkness and there is a ruler of darkness called Satan who goes about accusing and undermining. Matter of fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul writes and he says, the God of this world blinds the minds of them that don't believe. In other words, they can't see clearly They're walking in darkness, and sometimes darkness is comforting. Sometimes darkness looks good. Sometimes darkness is me having my own way, because what John wants to help us to come to understand that only in the light can we experience the fullness of God, and that light comes through this Jesus. So I want to read to you a part of chapter 2 now, as we've gone through chapter 1, and I want you to, I'm going to start in verse 1, I'll read through verse 6, just so that we can um, think about this this morning. 2-1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. And if he says, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Verse 3, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Would you pray with me? Father, as we open up these words, I pray that you'd give us ears to hear, help us to communicate clearly, and help us, Lord, to be different when we leave because we've met Jesus And because he loves us, restores us, brings us to a place of reigning with him so that we can be free. Free from the darkness, free from sin's sovereignty in our life, and free to enjoy one another with grace and truth. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen and amen. So when we think about these verses I just read we immediately are struck that John draws a parallel between what we believe and what we do. He says it right in the beginning. He says in verse 1, he says, My dear children, I write these things so that you will not sin. Because sin is real. But, But make no mistake about it. Sin isn't simply about breaking the rules. I mean, we saw last week that if we say we do not sin, we're a liar. And then it said, if we say we have no sin, we're deceived. So may I suggest that sin is a disease before it is an action. That sin is something that creeps into our life because of a lie that was believed. If you go all the way back to the garden where there was this perfect circle of love, the Father, Adam, Eve, the Trinitarian God in relationship, and they enjoyed one another's presence. And then the accuser, the one who is sovereign over the realm of darkness, the devil himself, speaks into the lives and hearts and minds of Adam and Eve and says, you can be just like God without God. And those things that God has 
prohibited you to do, which by the one was only one thing, don't eat of that tree. It seems like it would have been a lot easier then to not sin than today. But the truth of the matter is, they went and ate of that tree, and that darkness began to pervade them. And the first emotion that we see in Scripture, that is the human emotion, is one of fear. And fear settled into the heart of Adam and Eve, and that fear began a a self-protective mechanism that caused them to live for themselves in a way that they believed would help them. But God said, who told you you were naked? Who told you to do that? And we find ourselves with an introduction to sin, and sin is what we all do. It's a defense mechanism. It's an opportunity for you and I to protect ourselves because we really don't want to believe that we would be that kind of people. But self-sovereignty is what sin is, and it settles in. And so John says, I write to you, he says, my dear, I write to you so that you will not sin. And let me just reiterate this reality because the Bible says a lot, not that I want to bum you out before I even begin, but the reality of this thing called sin, again, not simply breaking of rules. Sin existed before the law was ever given. Sin was something that existed in hearts because of self-sufficiency, self-centeredness. I'm going to do my own thing. So notice what Paul, Ephesians 4.22 says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life, put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. So Paul says, do something about it. He says in verse 24, Ephesians 4, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Look at Philippians 2, 12 says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Colossians 3, 5 says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. I won't go on with a number of them, but what Paul, what the writers are saying, that sin has a way of being a part of our nature before it's ever a part of our action. And so the very fact that John comes and says that if you sin, we have an advocate, he wants us to come to an understanding of the beauty of the gospel. The gospel doesn't just heal us of our sins but it heals us of our sin. It provides us with a new nature. We call it being born again. And that new nature is nothing less than the nature of God. And that is why when we read the second part of this, we begin to get a metaphor for who Jesus is. Here, the word advocate, as I said earlier, is sometimes translated helper, sometimes translated comforter. But it's one who comes alongside us. It's one who stands in our place. It's one who stands for us. There are a lot of images that are given to us in the scriptures about who God is. And as we look through the scriptures and begin to see those particular kinds of labels and metaphors, one of the things that we see over and over again, that Jesus restores our life. Jesus restores our life. 
Before you ever knew his name, Jesus was the restorer of your life. Jesus entered into our world. This is the part that John is saying in this incarnation. Jesus became one of us. And Jesus took on the horror, if you will, of humanity, the the terror of humanity, the sin of humanity, the unkindness of humanity, the brutal attacks of humanity, the unkindness, the harsh words. Jesus took it all upon himself. And in that incarnation where God became man, he took upon all that man was in sin and took it to the cross. And at that cross, all that sin was nailed there, and that very integrity of God, if I might put it that way, the very love of God, the very balance of grace and truth was met there at that cross. And it was there that we began to see what God was willing to do on our behalf to bring us into relationship with him. That he was willing to give up the most precious piece of who he was, if you will, the son. And in that death and in that burial and in that resurrection and all that Jesus did in that moment of time, our sins were forgiven. He was the restorer of life. And I think about that very metaphor, the restorer of life. Because when I see Jesus restore the Samaritan woman at the well, restore her to a community, restore her to a place of health and wholeness, he restores people. When I see him with the woman who was caught in adultery and say to her, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more, he's the restorer of that woman. When I see him with the man who was a demoniac and he restored his clear thinking, when I see him to the blind to restore their sight, when I see him as he meets Peter in his brokenness and restores his place of confidence in the God who saved him and served him, I recognize that this is the God that John is speaking of. But he refers to him as our advocate. And so when I think about these Metaphors, and I think about this one. I think for all of us, we're easily accepting of the God who dies on the cross for us. We're easily accepting of the one, if you will, who on that cross said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But if we only have a God who's dying on the cross, and we don't have a God who is doing before the Father as an advocate, as an intercessor, as one who is bringing us into relationship with him, then what we end up doing is we know that God's forgiven us, but because we sin again anyway, we feel like we're always on probation with God. And we find ourselves always living in not the confidence that is ours because we have an advocate who is constantly in front of the Father, not as a dying Savior, but as a doing high priest, as a doing Savior who's interceding for us, who's providing us with the very confidence that we need because even though we've come to Christ, we still need Jesus. We still need the Spirit of God. We still need one who goes before the Father when we fail and says, Father, Father, not as a good cop, bad cop. It's not that God the Father really wants to strike us down and Jesus is getting in the way of that. 
There is no way to defy, uh, divide the son from the father. They're indivisible. And in that moment in which he came to the cross and died for us, God the Father was involved with that too, as the Spirit of God was involved with that. But our advocate is constantly making pleas for us, not merciful pleas, but pleas of justice. Father, I already paid for his sin. I already paid for her sin. Justice has been satisfied. And to see me today is to see Christ. To see Christ is to see you in him because we together are seated at the right hand of the Father in Jesus. And then when Jesus died, before you ever accepted him, you were accepted because you were accepted in his shed blood. You were accepted in his death and burial and resurrection. You were accepted by the means of an advocate, of a crucified Savior. And so when we hear these words, we recognize that's the gospel. The gospel is that God came to the earth in the form of a man and embraced all the horror of our sin and our humanity so that in the resurrection, he would demonstrate a victory over sin and a righteousness that would be given to us. It's similar to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. And I want you to just see that verse that is so important. It says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in him. There has been this exchange before you were ever even aware of the exchange. That exchange took place when Christ Jesus died on the cross for humanity's sin. That being true, what does this mean for us? If belief and behavior have a way of coming together, how should we live our life? Without an understanding of a doing Savior and only embracing a dying Savior, then even though we've accepted Christ as our Savior, anybody since you've accepted Christ as your Savior been perfect? Anybody? Oh my goodness, what are you doing here? Because the truth of the matter is, perfection is not ours, it's his. And so as we begin, and Ryan said it so well last week, as we confess, because it's confession that brings us out of the realm of darkness into the realm of light so that we can see the grace and truth that God has provided so that we might live powerful lives. Because what happens if we don't believe that? Number one, guilt gets us, right? Every time we sin, there can be an extraordinary sense of guilt that we feel, whereby we even might believe because the accuser is whispering in our ear, see, you really didn't accept Christ. See, you're really not a Christian. See, you know, you broke that rule. You had that thought. And that, that guilt gets inside of you and it begins to cripple you. And it begins to undermine the joy and the freedom and the abundant life that God has provided for you, not because you've accepted him, because he's finished the work to make it available to every single person on this planet before they ever, ever accepted him. God has provided a means for each and every one of you, and our responsibility is to see that and simply embrace it. And as we embrace it and allow the Holy Spirit that calls us to walk in the light to walk with us so that we can live in the light and the power of that light to live differently. 
Because the truth of the matter is the one who is accusing you is the devil himself. It's not Jesus. It's not the Father. It's not them having an argument up in heaven in order to see whether you can qualify for continuing to walk. It's the devil himself who accuses you of being something less than what God's intent is. And the truth of the matter is based on our experience. That oftentimes is truth. But that's not how God evaluates us. God evaluates us on the basis of who Jesus is. And so if we allow that guilt to undermine our walk with God, it cripples us. And that guilt leads to discouragement. That guilt leads to us kind of despair and a kind of heartache that prevents us from being able to take one step after another, to experience the grace and the forgiveness and the joy that is ours, not based on how we've performed, but based on how Christ has performed and the availability of that finished work to each and every one of us. Because freedom doesn't come as a result of what I do. Freedom comes as a result of what God has done. And when we embrace that advocacy, when we embrace that grace, when we embrace that truth, when we embrace that love, it has a way of inspiring us. Why else would Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5.14, it's the love of Christ that constrains me. Think about it. He doesn't say it's the law of Christ that constrains me. He doesn't say it's the perfection of Christ that constrains me. He says it's the love of Christ Christ that constrains me. Because we thus judge if one died for all, then all are dead. And he goes on to say, but if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. And love begins to be the influence on our lives so that while we fail, and we do, while we sin, and we do, we find ourselves not compounding that sin by guilt and shame and accusations and the discouragement of the enemy, but we simply go to our advocate. We go to our high priest. And the writer of Hebrews said, let us therefore go boldly to obtain grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. Because our God is that kind of a God. He's the restorer of life. And so when we begin to grasp that, and you, I hope you understand how hard it is to grasp that because we live in a world where everything is based on performance. And the minute we fail, let alone fail in our walk with Christ, how quick we are to condemn ourselves, how quick we are to allow the enemy, the devil himself, to whisper in our ear, you're not that. You're not this. You're, maybe you're not. I don't know how many times I've had people come to me and say, I don't know if I'm a believer. I don't know if I'm really a Christian. I can't get rid of this sin in my life. Well, welcome to the club. The reality of getting rid of sin, if we believe that, is oftentimes a misunderstanding of how powerful sin really is. And the only one that can remove sin is Jesus himself. And when we begin to live in that truth and we begin to enjoy that truth, we stop performing the Christian life and we start living the Christian life. What's the difference between the two? When we try to perform the Christian life, it's all based on me. It's me 
reading the Bible more. It's me going to church more. It's me, me, me. And I begin to expect that God will provide me with the freedom that I need if I do the right things to get there. That's religion. And we do that all the time. And in doing that, we never really find our true identity. Because the only way that we can find an identity that frees us is to find it by the grace of God provided for us in Christ. Think of how many of you try to be something that makes other people happy. And then you're never happy. C.S. Lewis has a really interesting character that I want to read this to you because her name is Mrs. Fidget. And uh, it's in, the, in, in his book, uh, The Four Loves. And maybe you know Mrs. Fidget. So listen to her. Uh, he says this. Uh, it says, I'm thinking of Mrs. Fidget, who died a few months ago. It is really astonishing how her family have brightened up since then. Mrs. Fidget very often said that she lived for her family. And it was not untrue. Everyone in the neighborhood knew it because she told them. And she lives for her family, they said. What a wife. What a mother. She did all the washing. True, she did it badly, but she still did it. And they could have afforded to send it out to the laundry, and they frequently begged her not to do it, but she did it anyway because they needed her to do that. There was always a hot lunch for anyone who was at home and always a hot meal at night, even in midsummer. They implored her not to provide this. They protested almost with tears in their eyes and with truth that they liked cold meals. It made no difference. She was living for her family. For Mrs. Fidget, as so often said, would work her fingers to the bone for her family. They couldn't stop her, nor could they, being decent people, quite sit still and watch her do it. They had to help, of course. Indeed, they were always having to help. That is, they did things for her to help her to do things for them, which they didn't want done by her in the first place. <laughs> the problem of Mrs. Fidget was not marriage, not relationships, not motherhood. The problem of Mrs. Fidget was the way she saw herself. The evil one had whispered into her ear that she was not special. She was not acceptable as she was. She wasn't good enough. He whispered his lies into her ear that she was on the wrong side of the door of glory and life outside, excluded from the real deal. And she believed his whisper. She believed that she was not. So she dreamed a dream of becoming something that she wasn't instead of realizing who she really was. What did she do? She invented an ideal, a legend in her own mind. She believed that if she could attain the ideal, that she would become, uh, then she would be acceptable. Then she would be alive with life on the inside of glory. <laughs> Do you see how that works, Lewis says? Mrs. Fidget did not love her family. She loved herself and the dream of what she wanted to be. And we do that in our Christian life because we don't know who we are in Christ. You're the cat's meow. You're beautiful. You're accepted. You're adopted. You're forgiven. You are complete in him. Read your Bible, your New Testament. 
you are a new creature in Christ. But when we allow ourselves to be religious instead of Christian, we're never quite satisfied with what we do to appease God because God will never be appeased by what we do. And so when we read in this passage what this advocate does, he begins to teach us how to live because we're not living expecting to get hit with the two by four when we fall out of line. We're living in the freedom of becoming what we already are. And that is a child of God. So listen to what John says because the first test here is the test of obedience. But it's not an obedience to become something that we're not. It's an obedience to discover who we are. And it is an obedience that is motivated by love and not by works. And that love that is motivated, or that work, or that obedience that is motivated by love and not works experiences a certain freedom, a certain joy, a certain acceptance, because it's not an acceptance based on how I perform. There's a freedom in it. Let, let, look, look what he says here. First, he, he calls us, if this is true, if this gospel that we oftentimes think is too good to be true is true, if this gospel that says you are loved, you are accepted, you are forgiven, you are adopted, you are in Christ, you are complete in him, you are the cat's meow, you might not believe it, but that's not his fault. If that's the truth of the cross, the cross and the gospel, notice what John says. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. No, it's not saying if we keep his commands, we know him. He said, if we know him, we keep his commands. The Bible begins with this word of knowledge way back in the book of Genesis where Adam knows Eve. That kind of knowledge is oftentimes spoken of in that relationship as a sexual intimacy. If nothing less, it's a knowledge that focuses in on intimacy. And what John is trying to tell us, if we live in intimacy with God, then we obey his commands. But if we don't come to an understanding of the beauty of the gospel, of the beauty of our Savior, of the beauty who was raised from the dead and we were raised from the dead with him, the beauty of the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father and we are seated together with him, the one who is accepted by the Father, because how could that not happen if the Father and the Son are one? But God and the Father and the Son and the Spirit have provided us with an opportunity to be in Christ. So if that's true, wouldn't we want to be obedient? Wouldn't we want to live our lives for him? Wouldn't we love the opportunity? Now, granted, obedience isn't easy. And, and when it comes to self-discipline, how are we doing? Think about it. Think about another realm. Think about it on the physical realm of being obedient. You, I won't ask you to raise hands, but how many of you want to get in shape? How many of you want to lose weight? How many of you, you know, look and stare down that second piece of chocolate cake? When we think about physical discipline, what does it mean to be disciplined? It means to cross our will, right? 
It means we don't do what we want to do because there's something better that if we don't do what we don't want to do, it ends up working out in our benefit. How many of you go to the gym? Wow, you're a, you're a bad lot, I can tell you that. Wow. Okay, we're going to stop right now. We're going over to Sisters Athletic Club right now. But think about it. If we go to the gym, how many of you ever have had a trainer in your life, physically speaking, a few of you? And they yell at you, give me five more, right? You don't want to do five more. They yell at you and tell you to give me five more. Is that not crossing your will? And get this, you pay him to do it. Here's a glorious God who loves us, who died for us, who was raised from the dead, who has a will, a will that will set us free and make us more like him, beautiful and kind and gracious and compassionate, and we don't like it when he crosses our will. But we'll pay the trainer. Figure that out. But part of it is, I think, we don't realize how much God desires our best. And so the realization of obedience is because God wants our best. And in this case, obedience helps us to become more like the character of God. And so when John writes these words, he calls us to this obedience in a way that's motivated by love and not by works. Think about, think about the children of Israel. God in Exodus 19 brings them out of Egypt. He saves them, so to speak. He saves them and he brings them in Exodus 19 and he says to them, I love you. I'm saving you. You're going to be a treasured possession to me. You're my people. It wasn't until the next chapter that he gave them the rules. He already loved them. He already made them a treasured possession. He already called them out of Egypt. He already called them to be his people before they ever got the law. The law isn't there to make them his people. The law is there to help them understand who he is and how they can walk and live. And so when we think about the gospel, does the gospel call you to live differently? Has that first test, the internal test, become a part of your life? And have you come to understand that as you live that way, you're not motivated religiously like Mrs. Fidget, who in a religious sense might say, well, I go to church every Sunday. And, and you know, I read the Bible most days. Oh, boy, God forgive me, I didn't read it today. And we find ourselves undermining, give a place to the devil to whisper into our eyes and our ears so that we don't come to the understanding of the beauty of who this Jesus is. So there's a call to obedience, but that call to obedience, that test, right, that we've been talking about, that moral test, is a call to live obediently motivated by a love and by a grace that has already demonstrated who we are. And so when we live in obedience, we simply become more of who God has already made us to be. There's no room 
for the enemy to accuse us. There's no room for discouragement because even in our failure, and I want you to hear this and understand it. Oswald Chambers said it so well. He said, success and failure are the twin sisters of deceit. We don't get our identity from success. We don't get our identity from failure. If we do, we're deceived. We get our identity from the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that's the gospel. That's the beauty of Jesus entering into our world. And if we really embrace that, and we sense this call to live obedience, we recognize, notice what it says again in verse 3, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. When we come to know him, when we come to, to that intimacy, we come to that experience, and we don't obey out of fear anymore. I meet believers all the time that live half their life in fear because of not living up to a standard that they think that they could live up to without the grace of God permeating their life, without the freedom of Christ permeating life, without the Spirit of God permeating their life. If I'm a Christian, Paul says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. I have freedom. And we can look at the devil when he accuses us and says, nope, I got an advocate. I got a high priest. I have an intercessor. I've got one who is constantly before the Father with me in him for me. And that freedom stops me from being religious. A religious Mrs. Fidget who's measuring everybody outside of compassion, outside of grace, outside of the beauty of what God has provided as an advocate before the Father. And Jesus is saying, wait a minute, Father. You're just. And my work at the cross was a just payment for their sin. And so when we think about this truth, we go on to see, I, I saw this hymn and listen to it because I think it says it well. It's by William Copper. He says, no strength of nature can suffice to serve the Lord aright. No strength of nature, nothing on our own. And what she has, she misapplies for want of clearer light. How long beneath the law I lay in bondage and distress. I toiled the precept to obey, but toiled without success. Then to abstain from outward sin was more than I could do. Now when I feel sin's power within, I find I hate it too. What shall I do was then, was the word that I might worthier grow. What shall I then render to the Lord was my inquiry now. And listen to these two lines. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into a choice. That's the gospel. That's the beauty of who our God is and what it means. And, and we don't always understand the struggles and stuff that happens in our lives. But every one of those things, as we stumble along, as we grow, is an opportunity. We could say it this way, couldn't we? If we believe Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to purpose, all things means failure. 
All things mean stumbling. All things can mean sin when I do. All things work together for good. Because if grace is how I perceive God, if the advocate, if the gospel, if the restorer of life is the one I have this relationship with, then all those shortcomings become opportunities for me to experience the grace of God. Like Paul with a thorn in his side, God says, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. I don't allow my weakness to make me feel guilty. I don't allow my weakness to give room to the enemy to accuse me. I don't allow my weakness to so discourage me that I don't want to get up in the morning. I I allow my weakness to be a gift given to me by God who knew about that weakness while he died on the cross, and I bring it to him, and and I'm changed. And in that, I learn more about his love, and I learn more about what's good and true and worthy. And I don't see it all the time. But if I believe and pass the doctrinal test, that this gospel is way more beautiful. It's why people say, oh, that's a fairy tale. That can't be true. Yeah, it is true, and it is a fairy tale, but it's a real one. Do you remember the Karate Kid? How many of you went and saw the Karate Kid? Remember that? All of us went to see it. Remember, he he went to Mr. Miyagi, or was that that his name? And so he would go there and say, I want to be the best at karate that I can be. Teach me. And so you remember what Mr. Miyagi did? He said, great, let's whitewash this fence. Wash on, wash off, wash. Day after day, right? He kept doing it. And, and the kid was getting frustrated. He said, okay, okay, now I know how to whitewash this fence. I want to learn karate. He said, oh, you want to learn karate? Okay, we'll start tomorrow. He comes tomorrow. What's he give him? A broom. He said, sweep the floor. Sweep the floor. Because the kid didn't recognize that what he was being taught were principles of life that would make him awesome at karate. And the things that you're being taught in your weakness, in your failure, in your stumbling, if you'll embrace the advocate, are the very things that will make you more like the advocate and make you more understanding of the fullness of God that lives within you. And so it isn't, oh boy, I blew it. Now, let the enemy in, condemn me, accuse me, discourage me. No, God's strength will be made perfect in my weakness. Listen, I'm not shocked by my failures. I'm shocked that I don't give them to God and don't allow him to work in my life the beauty of what the gospel represents. So when we think about these truths, he tells us that we can begin to live our life and see this advocate. I'll guarantee it. I'll guarantee it. Before this day is over, you'll sin. But I'll also guarantee it. Before this day is over, you have an advocate with the Father who is constantly before the Father with you, providing you with the grace and the forgiveness and the joy. And I don't know, there's something, and maybe this is a problem for us, We don't own our sin, so we never really experience his goodness and grace. Maybe we're so busy pretending we don't sin, 
Maybe we're so busy covering up our sin. Maybe we're so busy being religious about our sin that when we do sin, we don't see the goodness of God's grace and the beauty of this gospel that gets inside of us and breaks our hearts and makes us become more like Jesus. Because I'll tell you what, obedience will make you vulnerable like you've never been vulnerable before. Because when the son became obedient to the cross, there was never a moment like that moment where we saw vulnerability, where the one who was God the son gave his life for us. And in that vulnerable moment, allowed himself to be crucified and beaten and spit on. Why? Because he wanted to enter into a relationship with us whereby his love would so move us that we would allow for that love to change us. And I'll guarantee you, until you really embrace the gospel, you'll just be another religious person. And when someone doesn't live up to the standard you've raised to be a good Mrs. Fidget, you'll judge them. And the very judgment that you place upon them will rob you of the understanding of who Jesus is. And then the world looks at us and goes, I'm going to be a Buddhist. How many young people have left the church because the church is anything but the gospel? It becomes a bunch of religious people condemning other religious people for being religious. Praise God for Jesus. We have an advocate. I pray you would embrace him. Let's pray. Father, as we come this morning, deliver us from the Mrs. Fidgets in our life. God, deliver us from living our life of duty. Help us to live a life of delight. And may that delight be such a powerful force in us that ultimately we are constrained by it to live holy, even as Paul said. And so, Father, we come this morning with a desire to reflect upon the communion table. And we recognize that in communion, we're reminded once again of how beautiful you are. For your body was broken for us. Your blood was shed for us. And we don't have just a dying Savior. We have a Savior who is alive at the right hand of the Father, even this very moment, our greatest cheerleader. So, Father, I pray as we go to the communion table, we would go to the table with an understanding of our acceptance. That we would go to the communion table with an understanding of our adoption. We would go to the communion table with an understanding of this unconditional love that has been provided for us and a finished work that has enabled us to be redeemed and brought into the family of God, which was the original intent of the Godhead anyway. So I wonder if we could stand and come to the communion table and come with an understanding of the goodness of God. Come with an understanding of the celebration that is ours in what the gospel has provided through his death, burial, and resurrection. Father, forgive us as you have so abundantly of our sin. But God, forgive us for our unbelief. 
that we might come to the table as a people who know how to celebrate God's goodness and allow that goodness to be the motivation for how we live. We ask in Christ's name, amen.